There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our very special guest today is Dana Perino. Dana is an American political commentator and author who was the 24th White House Press Secretary who served under President George W. Bush during the final 16 months of his second term. She was the second female White House Press Secretary after Dee Dee Myers, who served during the Clinton administration. She's also a former book publishing executive at Random House. Dana is well known for her role as a political commentator on the Fox News program, The Five, and recently took on her new role as co of Fox News Morning Program, America's Newsroom. Dana Perino, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. You're obviously a very familiar face to millions of Americans. And so folks tend to think they know you, but there's plenty in your life story <laughs> that I wasn't aware of, including the fact that you were born in Wyoming and that you and your husband moved to Great Britain for a year. Could you please fill in the blanks mm -hmm. about growing up and your career for us? Yeah, sure. Um, again, thanks for having me. And I'm thrilled that you're doing a podcast. I think it's um, a great, a natural outgrowth for people that are um, leaders and uh, for all that you've done uh, for our country and moving forward. I think it's incredible. So thank you for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I was born in Wyoming. Uh, not many people are. Uh, I didn't live there too long, but my mom and dad's family both are still there. Um, one family ranches and the other was a sort of small business entrepreneurs on, on long I-80, if you've ever driven across the country. Um, and the ranch is really where I spend all sorts of formative time. Um, you know, every Christmas, uh, holiday, entire summer vacations. And I, I think back on that as being uh, just so important for my understanding of the sort of middle of the country, um, energy and environmental issues, conservation, for example. Uh, my grandfather was a um, county chairman, or county commissioner, excuse me, uh, for Weston County. And so I learned a little bit about public service. He was a World War II vet. Both my grandparents were World War II veterans. Um, but then I actually, my dad was the only one who didn't stay on the ranch, and he moved to Denver. He went to college at University of uh, Wyoming at Laramie. And then we grew up in Denver and then just outside of Denver. Um, and I remember, I didn't even see the ocean until I was 16 um, when we finally uh, went on a big trip to Mexico. And so, but in those years, um, the other thing that happened, I think that was really formative, was my dad was very into current events. And he subscribed to every magazine and newspaper. And we watched all the news programs. And when I was in third grade, he started this tradition with me where I had to read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post every day before he got home from work. And I had to just um, be prepared to discuss two articles that I'd chosen. And that started this lifelong love of news and learning. And what's great thing today is that even if I didn't get paid to be informed and uh, be aware of what's in the news. I think I would still do it anyway because I love it that much. Um, went to college to be in television news. I really wanted to be um, an anchor for a big metropolitan city. I love local news. But along the way, I realized that 
the climb to get to that position was just going to be not what I wanted to do. Um, and so I ended up going to Capitol Hill and I worked in communications and press secretary work on Capitol Hill, made a lot of friends. Then I met my husband on an airplane and he's British. He's 18 years older than me. Uh, he lived in England at the time. There's so many reasons why it's just by chance that we met and we fell in love on this flight. We call it love at first flight. And that was 24 years ago this August. And I moved to England um, about six months after meeting him, which seems like for me, for being such a planner, that's so um, almost sounds spontaneous, but it was the right thing to do. And I, I had a family friend tell me, you know, don't give up on this chance to be loved. And my favorite piece of advice in the new book that I have is um, choosing to be loved is not a career limiting decision. Even though a lot of people will think about that, like, oh, you know, my career, I really want to get it underway before I settle down. And for me, I look back and think that at every point when there was a career advancement for me, you know, Peter was there helping make it happen. We've mentioned that you were a book publishing executive, but you're also an author. In your latest mm -hmm. book, Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women by a Former Young Woman. It's been out just a few weeks now. What was the inspiration for that book? Well, in my first book, I wrote, uh, it was kind of an autobiography to, to explain the story of how does somebody go from being born in Wyoming to being the White House press secretary for George W. Bush. And in that book, I included one chapter of all, what I thought was all my mentoring advice in one place. And that was the chapter, Chris, that I just had been asked about over and over again. People, especially young women that come to me for advice, and look, there's a plenty of them. Uh, young women are talented, ambitious, and hungry for guidance. And so over the years, I realized I had more to say. And um, because that first book was successful, that's usually what happens. The publisher will come to you and try to get you to write another one. I put it off for a while until I really felt like I knew what I wanted to say. And then I spent the, um, the year of the pandemic, really, every weekend um, I would spend working on the book. And it's just so rewarding because I feel that when the book came out was March 9th. And that was about a year to the day when people started having to work from home and to socially distance. And, and it really kind of hit home that, oh, this pandemic is a serious thing. And it feels like the right book at the right time, especially with the title, you know, everything will be okay. Um, now that's not a passive thing. It doesn't mean that you don't have to work hard. Um, but that if you do put in the work and you're born in America and you're educated, everything will be okay. If you make good decisions. <laughs> it's all about the decisions. You've also said that men should read the book too. What's in it for them? So my husband, when he first read the draft, he finished and he said, wow, women think a lot. And he said that, um, uh, you spend more time thinking about what we're thinking than we actually do thinking. But he also said that, you know, it was, he thinks that there's a lot of good advice in there. And Trey Gowdy, former congressman, who's also now a colleague here at Fox News, he said he got a lot out of it for himself for just little tips and thoughts about time management and um, managing up, um, which I think is an undervalued skill. I learned how to do that, of course, with the president. Um, and then also because, you know, he's a dad. And my friends who are girl dads, I love all that they're doing to help make their um, young girls' lives as successful as possible. Um, and sometimes, you know, your dad can tell you something. He can give you advice. Um, 
And I can give that very same advice and women will just hear it differently. And so I've seen a lot of dads buy the book for their daughters, hoping that it will give them some increased confidence and some guidance to make sure that they sort of get on a right path as they uh, embark on their lives. Well, our oldest daughter is graduating high school in a few months and off to college in the fall. And so I actually just uh, got a copy of your book for her to read to kind of help her make that transition uh, the next chapter in life. So so thanks for your leadership there. That's great. So as states have started to lift their COVID-related travel and gathering restrictions, are you able to get out and do more of the traditional book tour kinds of events or do you expect to be doing more in the near future? So I did one actually just recently. Um, the, I did. I got to go to the Bush Center and President and Mrs. Bush came to the event and that was in person, but it wasn't like a traditional signing where you have people line up. I actually was able to do one of those in Manasquan, New Jersey. And, you know, we you just adapt. There were people wore masks. They lined up six feet apart. Um, and it took three hours, <laughs> um, but we got it all done. And so it's been a little bit different. However, I think that, um, you know, because I read the audiobook as well, the audiobook's done pretty well. Um, but people are out there buying books. And um, if there's a way that I can reach them, and, and actually I probably have reached more people in this format, um, like, like the opportunity to talk to you and your um, viewers and listeners, that means a, a ton to an author to try to get word of mouth going. And I think that's actually started to happen with this book. Oh, that's great. And so with the summer beach season rapidly approaching, I highly recommend this to, uh, to our listeners and viewers. Oh, good. Thanks. And it's on our homepage as well. So your first book was titled, and the good news is lessons and advice from the bright side. It sounds like you're an eternal optimist. <laughs> when did you develop that mindset and how can we manage to stay upbeat, especially in challenging times like today? I think, I know I do think that some people are born with like a sunny disposition. Um, and that's just the way some people are, right? Just like some people are born with liberal thoughts or conservative thoughts um, in terms of their ideology. Um, for me, I was just always been a pretty positive person. Like the alternative is, is not good. It's actually interesting. When I lived in England, I told Peter that one of the things that kind of surprised me is that the country felt like a glass half full kind of place. And America is very much, even from its founding, this glass half full place where there's hope and an opportunity and you want to try and drive. And um, like in England, if you ask people, how are you doing? They'll say, not so bad. And here, you know, you, you hopefully you'll get, I'm great. Things are good and moving on. So part of it, I think that Americans are just optimistic. Um, and also I worked for a president, George W. Bush, who was also a pretty optimistic person. Um, and that didn't mean there were a ton of challenges. Uh, there were, but that, you know, being joyous in life and thanking God for the gift of this life and then trying to live your life as best as possible. um, I think that that makes you more optimistic. The other thing is I've also had a chance to travel to many places all around the world, mostly because of my work with the president, but then also since um, I do a lot of work in Africa, for example, work meaning um, charity stuff. And I, again, I just go back to this point that if you were born in America, you won life's great lottery. Um, I did an interview recently of an immigrant that President Bush painted for his new book out of one many, and her name is Tier Suzuki. And she doesn't even know what her actual birth date is because Pol Pot at the time did not allow them to keep any records. But she knows that she was born in the year of the rat and that it was monsoon season. So she and I are the exact same age. What's the difference between 
her and me. I was born in America. And my, so my life was immediately, I go to the front of the line. And then she comes as a little girl here. She works hard. She now is an w- amazing uh, person uh, that works at Ernst & Young. And actually, she went to the, through the Presidential Leaders Scholars Program, Pres- Presidential Leaders Scholars Program. Yep. Um, and that's how President Bush met her. And she is just such an incredible person. But I, I really go back to that. Um, tomorrow, I'm actually interviewing a young girl from Afghanistan. She's 26. And my assistant is 26. And when she overheard our conversation the other day in the pre-interview and I got off the phone and Caroline said, oh, I see what you mean. You know, they are the, they're the same age. And this young, this young woman in Afghanistan, you know, she's very concerned about her future um, as America decides to leave Afghanistan. And here's Caroline, right? She's, she's a 26 as well in America. And this, the opportunity to be born here, you cannot beat it. You have the wonderfully refreshing belief that pets transcend politics and bring mm-hmm. people together. That's quite a statement these days when it seems the nation is so divided at times, it's hard to believe that anything can transcend politics. Can you make the case for your pets over politics theory and why it matters? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, just try it in your own life. I think, I can't remember the statistics, but it's something like 70% of Americans have a, a pet in the home. And Laura Bush used to say that pets make a house a home. So people that have pets, there's a common interest um, and there's also, you know, that feeling in your heart of what it's like to love your dog or your cat or your rabbit. Um, actually, my um, stepson has a, a python, which I think is horrendous. I don't understand <laughs> how he loves this pet, but he does. And so it's a great uniter. It's a great way, a conversation starter. Um, Donna Brazil, who, um, of course, ran Al Gore's campaign, um, prominent Democrat. She and I have been friends for years. Um she had Chip Chip and I had Henry at the time. Now I have Jasper and she has Zora. Here's Jasper right here. Um, and I just found that, that it's a great way to set aside politics. You know, I, I actually, I love reading about politics and analyzing politics, but I don't love talking politics. And so sometimes, like, for example, at the dog park, I have a rule. Like, I don't talk about politics at the dog park. And even when people get, oh, they just, they dying to ask me something, I hold fast to that principle because that's a place that I want to enjoy. And I don't it in any way um, not want to go to the dog bar. That's like the best place in New York. Just unwind and, and be yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah. now that you make a few of those comments, I have a colleague that says dogs bring, bring love and you just totally said it right there. And it's really fun like, to see in the pandemic, all these people empty out the shelters um, because now they had time to have a dog and, I do think that that helps spread joy. Um, I, hope, I hope that that continues. Yeah, no question. I mentioned earlier, let me tell you about Jasper, speaks to me about your ability to adapt and to move forward. I really like that story because this podcast is about personal empowerment and well-being. An essential ingredient in both is the ability to turn a problem or a challenge into a solution and a triumph. Again, how does someone go about learning to adapt and succeed, especially when they've experienced a major setback? Well, that's a great question. Um, And a lot about this book is um, helping people for career advancement. But also, I think what's different about my book to others is it's not just about how to um, get your next job or the raise or the promotion that you're going after, but how to also experience more serenity in your life. I think one of the most important things we've found, and I think a lot of people 
have realized this in this pandemic year is that resiliency is a very important characteristic. Um, employers want to see how do you bounce back from a mistake or a letdown or a disappointment? Because um, there's going to be those. You know, you're going to make a mistake on air, um, like, you know, mispronouncing something. Do you spend the next four days beating yourself up or do you say, oh, gosh, let me commit that to memory. I'll never do that again and, and move on because nobody expects you to be perfect. Um, but I find, especially with women, let's say like something negative happens at work or they flub a presentation or maybe they don't get the promotion and, you know, a male colleague does and they'll spend a ton of time, um, you know, beating themselves up over it rather than saying, okay, what objectively could I have done better? And what can I do to lay out a plan for myself to improve? Um, if you can show that kind of resiliency, that will definitely help you get through all sorts of challenges. I mean, you know that, Chris, obviously, from all that, all that you've done. Um, and I think for the people that you employ or that you work with um, through Soldier Strong, like you're looking for the people that can figure out a way to take something like, for example, if you are injured in war, you sacrifice um, in some way. You, you could imagine that that could just consume people and that you could spend a lot of time feeling bad for yourself or you could figure out how to get up off the mat. You know, can, can you show that you can take a punch? And the more you do that, the more you realize that everything will be okay because you have those skills. So, of course, no conversation with you would be complete without talking about your time at the White House, working for President George W. Bush. Yeah. I think one of our favorite people, both of ours. Yeah. What, the White House has been described as one of the most remarkable workplaces in the world. What was it like to work there? Mm, gosh, I loved it so much. So we had a chief of staff named Andy Card, you might remember. And when you get the job in the White House, you get to have this private meeting with Andy. And one of the things he said is that, um, that when you work at a White House, you can get a big head about it. He said two things um, to, to prevent that. One is to share the White House with others. You know, if people call you and they want, they're coming to Washington, D.C., and they would like a tour of the West Wing, you know, come in on a Saturday or a Sunday and, and take them through and share it with people. I found that to be very true. But the other thing he said is, you know, remember to be grateful every day. And so I started a tradition with myself where when I walked into the West Wing every day, when the uh, U.S. Marine would open the door for me, I would say a prayer of gratitude and uh, I would ask for uh, um, help to make sure that I was uh, doing my very best on behalf of the American people every day. And because I did that every single time I walked in, no matter how many times I left during the day, it, it just made me live with a more um, grateful heart, if that makes more sense, because it's a temporary position. You know, as President Bush said, even though we were going to miss each other, we all had to leave on at noon on January 20th, 2009. We didn't have an option. You're not going to be able to stay. So I tried to make the most of it because I knew that that time would go by very fast. And look, it was very stressful. I used to get up at 412 in the morning and I don't regret a single moment. I loved my time there. And I know that in some ways hindsight is 2020, but in, in my case, it informed all my, my entire future and I am so grateful for the opportunity to have had that chance. 4.12 a.m. is a very specific time for your alarm to be yeah. set. I love the that. The thing is, is that my alarm was set for 4.20, but I never, I hate to be woken by an alarm. 
And for some reason, I would wake up every day at 4.12. Just the body clock, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you have another rule, and it was one that you created during your time at the White House, and that is always let the other person go first. <laughs> How did that rule change your entire career path? So I was, you know, as I said, I was so grateful for my time at the White House, but there was a, a moment in sort of the summer of uh, 2007 when we were so told by the new chief of staff, Josh Bolton, that if we didn't feel we could make it all the way through to the end, that perhaps it would be good to move on at that point so that um, somebody else can come in with fresh legs and see it through because the president intended to sprint to the finish. I felt like I'd learned all I could as the deputy. I had that opportunity for um, about two and a half years at that point. So my husband and I uh, took a long weekend, talked it all through, and I decided that I would put in my resignation. And so I went to work on that Monday morning and I saw Ed Gillespie, the counselor to the president and said, hey, I need to uh, talk to you after the meeting. He said, yes, I need to talk to you too. Okay, great. Um, and then after the meeting, he said, Dana, can you stay? I said, sure. So then I sat down across from him and I went to just blurt it out because I was so nervous. just wanted to get the news out. And he said, do you mind if I go first? And I said, okay, sure. And I sat back and he said, the president would like to make you the press secretary on Friday. And I said, wonderful. What do we need to do to get ready? And I knew my life had changed dramatically. So that was, became my motto that if somebody says they need to talk to you as well, let them go first. Anyone working that closely with the president of the United States must see and experience some very stressful, demanding, funny, Mm -hmm. and poignant moments. What are a few of those that stick with you the most? Well, the first one that came to mind was sort of at the, was at the end when President Bush invited Barack Obama as the president-elect to the White House and all the former living presidents as well for lunch. And he said that at that lunch, they didn't talk about Mideast policy and taxes. They talked about raising children in the White House and sharing some good stories and some goodwill and good cheer. And I'll never forget and when I did the photo op, I was standing there with Robert Gibbs, who was uh, Obama's first press secretary. And in that moment, it was like, you know, here we are showing the world once again that we do this very well. Trans- peaceful transitions of power. And um, sometimes that's tested. Um, but we pull it off um, because our institutions hold. And so I love that. Of course, there are times when um, actually I remember one time on Marine One, um, my first trip on Marine One, I was nervous, as you could imagine, in this cl- close quarters. And the president had a box lunch uh, that the White House mess had given to him to take uh, with him. And inside was his favorite, peanut butter and honey sandwiches and sun chips. And he offered me half of the sandwich. And I, I said, oh, no, thank you. I'm fine. I said, come on. And so... I sat there eating honey, peanut butter and honey sandwiches with the president of the United States, getting to know him. And that's probably one of my favorite memories. Not many people can say that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> especially peanut butter and honey. <laughs> exactly. Very specific, like 412. So, Dana, you are, and I hope always will be, the only press secretary injured in a shoe-throwing incident at a news conference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a presidential news conference, no less. That has to be one of your more unusual experiences. Who throws shoes at new conferences? Yeah, well, uh, a two-bit terrorist, that's who did it. I call That's what I call him. Um, he's not just a protester. I was in Iraq and, and Baghdad at a press conference where you know, here were all of these journalists who never thought they would get to ask their own leader a question at a press conference, let alone the leader of the free world. 
um, who was, you know, the commander in chief of the occupying forces. And um, so that happened. Thankfully, President Bush, you know, he did the duck twice. Thankfully, very good reflexes and an athlete. Um, you know, because if the shoes had hit him, this would be a very different story. What ended up happening is the lead Secret Service agent lunged forward to protect the president, and he hit this boom mic. And it swung around and the steel arm caught me right below the eye and gave me a black eye for the last six weeks of the administration, <laughs> which I'm sure our, um, you know, the president's political opponents probably enjoyed and thought that was apt metaphor. But it hurt so bad. I'll never forget that. So you recently took on a new role at Fox News. I understand that you were nervous about your first day on America's newsroom, that you had your shoes on the wrong feet. <laughs> It's a true story. It was so early. Yeah, it was so early. And I was like rushing. I'm like, oh my gosh, get ready. And I put them, and I started walking down. I'm like, oh. well, actually, it was our first day back in studio from work from home. So I hadn't worn high heels in a year. So I was like, wow, this is so uncomfortable. And I walked out and I'm walking. I'm like, so uncomfortable. And I get down to the 12th floor and I'm walking to the studio and I'm like, what is wrong? And I took one of the shoes off and I'm like, oh, they're on the wrong feet. That's why it was so uncomfortable. So I admitted it on air as we went to air and Bill Hemmer didn't know what I was going to say. And it just, I think it broke the ice perfectly for the nerves. And I think that there is something about confident humility that helps people relate to you better and to want to listen to you. So, you know, I'm pretty open about um, mistakes and silly things like that. We have just a minute or so left. Any parting advice for audience about how they can feel more empowered, empowered and achieve their goals? Well, sure. I mean, one, well, I think that um, I, I recommend people study leaders, right? So there's a lot of books that are written about uh, leadership, but also about leaders. And one of the things you can do is go back and, and read about the people that you admire. And what, what did they do to try to... Um, improve their day. You know, one of the things I have here is like, for example, a to-do list to me should never be longer than three things because you'll never get to 25 things. Of course, you always have 25 things to do. And then the next day you just constantly have it, but can you achieve three things a day? Now that might sound like a, a simple thing. That's not very important, but it actually really helps me uh, to achieve things. And so little tips like that of practical advice really help. But I also think about a serenity checklist, and that is where you write down all of your worries and then mark them as to whether you um, are in, in control of that issue or not. Like, is, there, is that something that you have to deal with or is it something out of your control? And then, of course, in the serenity prayer, the wisdom to know the difference. For anything that is in your control, then you start making a little list of how you're going to attack it. And if you do that consistently you'll realize that you, want, you have the resiliency and the ability to pray about things that you can't control um, and to take action over the things that you can. And that gives you more of a serene life, but you're much more likely to be successful in your personal and professional goals if you do that. Dana Prino, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And let Pete Hegseth know if he needs a backup on uh, Fox and Friends, I'm available. He's, yeah, I mean, Pete's wonderful, and you would be wonderful, too. Thank you, Chris. No, thanks for your time. <laughs> this is Chris Meek with Next Steps Forward, and I'll be right back with my next guest. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. Thanks for joining us for the second half today. First, I'm so appreciative of Dana Prino to take some time from her busy schedule to be our guest in the first half. You know, I think as most of you know, she really is one of the busiest people uh, in news and media today. And so uh, truly appreciative of her taking some time out of her schedule to to talk with us. Today, we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to try and explain who I am, what I am, and why we do the show. Uh, I just want to give you a little bit of background on myself. I appreciate all the listeners and viewers who have been joining us for almost a year now, which I can't believe it'll be a year in August. Um, and as we all know, what a strange year it's been, uh, 2020, and certainly the first, first part of uh, 21 with COVID-19, but thankfully that uh, seems to be moving past us now. Uh, but I really just want to give you a little bit, bit background about myself, why I started Next Steps Forward, 
and what the goal is here and to share just some more information. Uh, so many, as many of you know, uh, I was raised in upstate New York by a single mom. My parents were divorced at a very young age and she was a deaf education teacher. Now, deaf education 40 years ago was very different. Uh, people didn't have the, the idea or the, the means to know how to cope with children uh, with different special needs. And so there was, everything was lumped into one special education program. So no matter what that need was, they're all mainstreamed into one class. And you know, not having the resources, not knowing what was out there for parents, uh, a lot of these kids had troubles at home. Um, and any given day, my mother would bring home a student due to physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse. And she'd say, well, you know, I'll give you a hot meal in a warm bed tonight, and we'll figure out with the superintendent tomorrow. Now, obviously, that's something you could never do today, just given laws, uh, but learn from a very young age that giving back, stepping up when you can, doing something to help somebody when they need, need some help, uh, giving a, a hand up, not a handout, is something that's really been instilled with me for uh, really for the better part of my life, you know, it's for 40, 45 years now. And, you know, I grew up with twin beds in my room and just, you know, over the last 10 years really figured out that wasn't just so I could have a friend sleepover. It's so the mom had a place to put one of her students when she needed to. So I took that mindset into college. Uh, as also many of you know, uh, my beloved alma mater is Syracuse University. We had the chance to run a few months ago and uh, lived and worked up there for a few years after I finished college uh, and then realized that, you know, to really kick off my career in finance, I had to move to New York. So I moved to New York City when I turned 25. I call it my, my midlife crisis, uh, bailing out of upstate New York. So luckily, my wife laughs and says, well, I'm glad you're over that now. And you didn't have to go to an expensive sports car. Uh, so I moved down to New York um, in 1995 and really in earnest, kickstarted my, my career in finance and uh, was working for a small firm that was based out of Chicago, but was in New York. And that firm was later acquired by Goldman Sachs. And so uh, 1999 was when that acquisition took place. And at the time I was running floor trading operations for that firm. So now we got integrated into Goldman Sachs and uh, was running floor trading operations on September 11th, 2001. And literally uh, in the shadows of the World Trade Center, uh, the office was 111 Broadway. I had my team uh, on three different exchanges, the American Stock Exchange, the New York Board of Trade, and of course, the New York Stock and the American Stock Exchange. So our office was really in the, in the middle of that triangle of the, the exchanges and we overlooked Trinity Church. And for those of you familiar with New York City, Trinity Church is in lower Manhattan uh, on Broadway. And the road is called the Canyon of Heroes because that's where they would have ticker tape parades for uh, presidents, for astronauts, for World Series parades, for the Yankees, and, and once in a while the Mets, uh, but more so my beloved Yankees. And just it was a very interesting and fascinating historic view. Uh, you know, that's the oldest church in New York City. There, there's tombstones that go back three, 400 years. And so it's a really unique part of the city. And I remember being in the office that day and hearing a loud boom, and it sounded like a garbage truck hitting a, a massive pothole in New York City. And all of a sudden, one of my colleagues looks at me and says, hey, Chris, I didn't know we're having a ticker tape parade today. And we look out the window, and it looks like ticker tape. It looks like confetti. But then we realize those papers are on fire or singed and had no idea what was happening, what was going on. We had a small TV in the office. Um, some of my team was on the different exchanges already. This was about... 8.35, I think, or 8.36 when the first plane hit. And, you know, started thinking about what was going on. We're watching the news. And then we see the second plane hit. And again, it's, we're across the street from the World Trade Center. So there were about four or five of us still in the office at that point. The rest were in the exchanges. Now I realized we had to get out of this building and I have to see what's going on on different exchanges. Uh, one of my colleagues was an offensive lineman at, at Yale and uh, had just undergone knee surgery. 
So uh, it took the other three of us, uh, all three of us to come down the stairs that morning. If I remember, you know, we made it down, the elevator was out, the building had shut that off. And so, uh, you know, went down the stairs and thankfully there happened to be a cab right outside. And so we were able to put him in a cab to let him go uh, and went over to, then I realized I had to go to the different exchanges to, to see what was going on. Um, you know, walked about a half a block out of my way just to go take a look at the World Trade Center and actually see it uh, live and in person as opposed to looking on the, on the TV in the office. And it's just something that is just seared in my mind forever. Um, I remember seeing people jumping because that was their best option. Uh, I remember seeing first responders rushing in while everyone else was rushing out. So uh, to make a long story short, thankfully, I was able to get my team out from all the different exchanges and everyone got home safely. And that is something that uh, you know, it was really stirred in my main in my brain. Uh, obviously, I remember every second of every minute of that day, but in particular, you know, it was this sort of five or ten minutes uh, right when we were getting out of, of 111 Broadway. And so, you know, eventually, as I made the, the trip up to Upper Manhattan uh, on the Upper East Side where my apartment was, and, and to find my wife, um, you know, I knew I had to do something to give back at some point, but I had no idea what it would look like, when it would be, uh, or how it would be done. So, fast forward a few years, uh, the war on terror is now going on. And uh, a friend and mentor of mine, who's a former Marine, uh, he always says, you know, you're never a former Marine. You're once a Marine, always a Marine. Uh, but he was retired. And he had received a copy of a letter from uh, a Marine in Iraq. And the letter simply said, we're not living in bases. We're living in Jeeps and foxholes. Can you please send tube socks? Because we hike all day and throw the old ones away. And baby wipes for personal hygiene. And that's what they would use to take a shower. So he said, Chris... You know, I know you're involved in a couple of things locally. Maybe you can put some care packages together. So I saw this as my chance to, to start and you know, do something small to, to give back to those who are serving and protecting our freedoms. So I reached out to a local pharmacy where I live in Connecticut in a local sneaker store. Um, the sneaker store, ironically enough, their sock distributor uh, was also a former Marine. So they gave us their, their socks at cost. And uh, the pharmacy, they said, well, we'll give you our wipes at cost, but also whatever you purchase will match dollar for dollar. So we had some local uh, sock drives, we call them, in, in Connecticut with some schools, churches, synagogues, uh, businesses, and ended up shipping about 1,500 pounds in our first shipment. We were able to get a, a connection at, uh, at an Air National Guard base up in, in Newburgh, New York, and uh, would rent the U-Haul and, and drive the, the gear up there. And they'd fly it out for us uh, free of charge, which um, was a great savings for us. Well, long story short, we get picked up by Elvis Duran uh, was in the morning show in New York City, which is nationally syndicated in 80 markets uh, with about 8 million listeners on any given day. So uh, all of a sudden, we're having sock drives from Maine to Miami to Hollywood and everywhere in between, which in theory sounds great, except when you live in Connecticut and uh, it's the middle of February and there's a foot of snow outside and your wife can't park a car in the garage, uh, she's not too happy with it. So um, continue doing that for the next several years and ended up sh shipping over 75,000 pounds to 73 units in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then in 2012, the wars were looking to, uh, the wars were winding down, the troops were looking to come home, and there really wasn't a need for us at that time. Uh, and so we were really looking to close up shop until another friend of mine came and said, hey, Chris, um, you know, there are some pretty significant gaps in the post 9 GI Bill. You should take a look at that. Well, apparently my friends think I have a lot of spare time on my hands because they're always giving me ideas of things for me to do. Uh, and not for them to do, but they always get involved. So I did some research and did see that there were some pretty big gaps in that uh, post 9-11 GI Bill. Uh, I knew at the time that the, you know, it was a post-financial crisis, but the economy was still a bit shaky. I knew that veteran unemployment was twice the national average. 
So start looking into that and figure out what we could do. Well, we launched three different scholarship programs. Uh, the organization was originally called Soldier Socks, and then we transitioned into Soldier Strong, which is what we are today. Uh, and I'll, mention, I'll get into that in a few minutes here. But uh, in t- doing the research on these scholarships, thought, okay, well, how can we help a veteran transition into civilian life? And the first thing we did was to help us as an organization make that transition was come up with a tagline of helping service members take their next steps forward. And that was focusing on the next steps in the battlefield with Tube Socks, and now next steps forward in job training and education. So we launched three different scholarship programs. One was a generic fund uh, for a veteran to go to any college or trade school of their choice. And the other two are what I call sister programs. One is at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, which is the number one foreign service school. And the other is, again, at my beloved alma mater, Syracuse, in the Maxwell School, which is the number one public policy school in the country. So there we were thinking of helping transition veterans uh, into private life, but still doing public service. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have been involved in raising money for scholarships before or not, but it's neither easy nor sexy to do, and really kind of fumbled along with that for several months. Then we came across an article in a magazine uh, on a company based in California, just outside San Francisco, that makes an exoskeleton device. And for those of you unfamiliar with this, that's a uh, literally a wearable robot that enables a paralyzed person to stand up and walk again. So through what I call the modern miracle of social media, I uh, reached out to the CEO through LinkedIn. I was going to be out in the Bay Area on business a few weeks uh, later than that. He said, Chris, come on out. We'd love to give you a tour of the facility and, and see what we can do. So uh, I'm a huge James Bond fan. And when uh, I show up at this place, it's a huge uh, former Ford factory. So big, massive space. And the reason I say James Bond is because it was kind of like when Bond goes to CQ to get all of his gadgets when he goes out on a mission, there's all these robotic arms walking around and legs and things like that. And so it was just really fascinating for me to see all this. And I thought, okay, this is something that's really sexy. We can raise some money for this. So after seeing the, seeing the facility, seeing what they make and what they do, I said, okay, I want to buy 10 of these things. Now, I made one big mistake there. I'm a sales guy, as most of you know. And for those of you in sales, uh, you also know this. I didn't ask how much before I bought them. Well, each device costs $150,000. So I thought, okay, um, I better get going here. You know, we'd never raised that much in a year before, let alone a multiple of that um, of 10. And so, uh, you know, really had to get kickstarted on that fundraising. Well, to date, we have donated 25 of these exoskeleton devices to VA medical centers across the country. Uh, giving the ability to tens of thousands of, of veterans the chance to stand up and be eye level with the world again. And I mentioned being eye level with the world again, you know, taking the next steps forward. Because one of the devices we gave went to the Denver VA a few years ago. And they said, Chris, in addition to um, using this for physical therapy, we're going to do a mental health study with the device. And I kind of scratched my head and I said, well, doc, you know, a mental health study on what? And she said, Chris, quite simply, for someone to be able to be standing up and be eye level with the world again. And that really blew my mind. Something as simple as that, that we all take for granted, uh, was just a fascinating idea to me. And we as an organization had been looking for a few years to get into the mental health space, but uh, it's a big space. It's a crowded space. It's not my specialty. And couldn't figure out where our um, business model of advanced revolutionary technology would fit in. So I started Googling veterans, mental health, which led to post-traumatic stress, which led to suicide. And done some, and then that led me to a gentleman named Dr. Skip Rizzo, who was a guest on our show last fall, who's created virtual reality software for post-11 veterans. So uh, again, reached out to, to Dr. Rizzo through LinkedIn, 
went out to try the equipment in Los Angeles. And this time before committing to it, I said, how much does it cost, Doc? Well, this is much more reasonable. And so we've added that program uh, to Soldier Strong as well. And so what we're doing there is, is we are donating those to VA medical centers across the country. Uh, in the fall of 2019 was when we kicked the program off. And that first one went to the Syracuse VA. And we now have those uh, spread out across the country through 18 different VA hospitals. And, and I, I mentioned the background there in terms of Soldier Strong, the organization. I think many of you know that the, the organization's name has come up a few times just from some of our other guests. And I really have not tried to use the show as a, a platform for the organization because it's not, but it really is a, an opportunity to talk about what Next Steps Forward means, what it means to me, what it means hopefully to you and in terms of empowerment, well-being, mental health. Uh, you know, as we know, the last year has really been a kick in the gut to all of us, especially in the mental health space. And I've said on many shows that the one positive to come out of this is that mental health is now forefront in terms of the conversations we have and you know, trying to really reduce the stigma of what's involved with that. And also, I, I talk about Soldier Strong, the organization, because yesterday was Memorial Day. And that's the day that we honor those military men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice. They gave their lives in defense of our freedom and liberties. Now, many people confuse the purpose of Memorial Day and Veterans Day, which is on November 11th. Veterans Day pays tribute to all American veterans, living or dead, but especially gives thanks to living veterans who serve their country honorably during war or peacetime. There's been a quote going around social media the, you know, the last couple of days leading into Memorial Day weekend. And it was from General George S. Patton, who said, it is foolish and wrong to mourn the men who died. Rather, we should thank God that such men lived. Now, I would disagree with the first part of the statement. We should remember, mourn, and honor those who have died. Well, we certainly should thank God every day for those who live. You know, in Patton's era, more military people died of their injuries because they didn't receive the kind of treatment they needed within what's known as the golden hour. Treatment of the battlefield injuries has been reimagined since Vietnam, with millions and millions of dollars being invested in trauma treatment close to the battlefield. As a result, more and more of our military personnel are surviving the devastating injuries today that would have been fatal years ago. So having more veterans alive on Veterans Day, rather than mourned on Memorial Day, is a cause to be grateful. There's also an obligation for all of us that we must share with grace and gratitude. And that obligation is what Soldier Strong and its ethos are all about. It's about helping veterans with visible and invisible wounds take their next steps forward. Sometimes literally through the help of robotic exoskeleton that helps veterans stand and walk for the first time in years. And sometimes with the help of our Brave Mind virtual reality system that helps veterans begin to move past post-traumatic stress. Again, I urge you to go back and, and watch the show with Dr. Rizzo and Chris Merkel. Uh, Chris Merkel is a Marine veteran who had suicide ideation. He really came very close several times. And through the treatment with Dr. Rizzo at USC, using the Brave Mind virtual reality system, not only has he be able, been able to overcome his post-traumatic stress, he's now finishing his PhD in clinical psychology to help those going through what he was going through as well. So having learned a bit about mental health, using virtual reality, um, you know, going through what we've gone through the last 15, 16 months with COVID, hearing more and learning more about people being scared, people being afraid, people being alone, not knowing who to talk to just because they're not feeling right. Uh, you know, we hear the phrase, it's okay to not be okay. And that's never been more true. And that led me into launching another nonprofit called Reach Strong. Uh, and again, the idea there is we're looking to fund and, and uh, 
launch programs of virtuality to help first responders, frontline workers, uh, sexual trauma, and children who have seen, gone through traumatic experiences. And so, you know, I t- urge you to take a look at the site, reachstrong.org. Uh, it's really just a news aggregator right now as we go through the funding process. But, uh, you know, it, it's something that is unfortunately necessary, but also fortunately necessary because now people are talking about it more. And, you know, we, we use the phrase next steps forward, maybe a little too cavalier, uh, a little too loosely, but there are people that need help out there. And, and we're here to help each other. That's what the whole point of, of community is, of civility, uh, really being the neighbor there that you can be and that you need to be. And just because people might look okay on the outside doesn't mean there might be something wrong on the inside where they're not feeling right. And just ask, hey, how are you doing today? I'm just checking in. I haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? Can I help you with anything? And you really just get a sense and get that conversation flowing. You know, we're going to continue to work every day to help others take their next steps forward because I can't imagine doing it any other way. And I'm going to leave you with one last thought for the day. It's a quote from my mom. Again, this is going back 40, 45 years ago, but still burned in my brain. And she would say, we might not be able to change the world today, but we can change the world around us. If you think of something as simple as that, don't be so scared about how daunting some of the problems are that we're facing out there as a nation, as a society. Think about what you can do to make every day a little bit better, not just for you and your family, but for those you know, with arms reach from you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, anything like that. One little act can go a long way. If you do it and you pay it forward, and then maybe two more people do it. And then it goes from two to four and four to eight and so on. And those numbers really become exponential very quickly, just from one small, simple act. I'm Chris Meek, proud host of Next Steps Forward. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life. 